This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 64, for the week ending August 4, 2017, the 10-year anniversary edition. In this special Saturday, Saturday episode, Jay Rosen and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories, including the NetOne UEPS Technologies declination and how the matter came to the attention of the Department of Justice, which was through being turned in by a competitor. We discuss an article by Brian Cave Attorneys Mark Sereri and Kristen Robinson on this issue. OFAC brings an enforcement action against a non-U.S. company. We explore its implications and what you need to do if you are a non-U.S. based company. I take a look at financial health as an indicia for third parties and corruption uh, using the rapid ratings tool. MasterCard uses a Richard Bastrong video in its compliance training. We talk about that. The 10-year anniversary is in honor of Dick Casson and his FCPA blog, which is 10 years old this week, and as Dick noted in his blog post, is still dancing. We talk about the premiere of my latest podcast, Across the Board, a a podcast on boards of directors, risk management, and corporate governance, and the response to episode one. We also talk about my August series in one month to more effective compliance program, where I talk about one month to more effective continuous improvement, which is sponsored by affiliated monitors. Jay reports on the state of compliance in both Mexico and Panama after a recent trip to both of those countries, and he discusses his latest article for the SCCE magazine, How Compliance Can Be a Business Advantage. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for joining us on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Mr. Monitor, Jay Rosen, for episode 64 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending August 11th, 2017. The uh, 10th. How, uh, how about August 4th? Oh, August 4th. Even better. (laughs) August 4th, getting a week ahead of myself. The 10-year anniversary edition, which we will explain in this podcast, who that is an anniversary for. Jay, with that um, uh, fouled up uh, introduction, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Great to be speaking to you on a Saturday. Normally, we do this on Fridays, but I was uh, on a little business travel, so it's uh, Nice to have a chance to take a look at the whole week, Monday through Friday, and uh, in the next uh, few minutes, we'll give you our thoughts on what's uh, important in the FCPA world. Great. So let's just hop right into it. Uh, We had a actually a couple of declinations announced this week, but I wanted to focus on one, Jay. Net One UEPS Technologies uh, received a full declination, meaning. Uh, no prosecution, no uh, declination under the pilot program, no declination with disgorgement. Uh, fully, the DOJ said that we're not going to prosecute. Now, it wasn't released by the DOJ. It came uh, from a company announcement. But the significant thing was that it uh, the company had been under investigation for five years, and the information which originally got to the Justice Department, which led to them opening an investigation, came from competitors. And uh, two attorneys at Brian Cave, Mark Siri and Kristen Robinson, wrote about this in a uh, excellent article called uh, FCPA Investigations, Competitors Dropping the Dime. And I thought, Jay, it was a, a, a good um, 
chance for everyone to remember that there are many different ways the DOJ gets its information. And certainly, uh, company self-disclosure is well-known. Uh, the DOJ per performing their own investigations is well-known. Uh, referrals from overseas enforcement agencies, once again, well-known, but also from competitors. And this is something that companies need to be cognizant of. Um, I had an email exchange with uh, Mark on this, um, and he said, you know, it was a great result, but they still had to go through five years of an investigation uh, hanging over their head. And he's absolutely right. The For me, the answer is that uh, you have to have a effective compliance program. You have to have that effective compliance program documented because when the regulators in the form of uh, the Department of Justice and SEC come knocking, um, uh they're asking some pretty serious and tough questions, and you have to have uh, documentation to show them. So congratulations to the company, but once again, uh, uh, an important message that uh, information can get to the Department of Justice from a variety of, of ways. And this obviously, uh, or rather I would say, it was certainly not a uh, uh, completely unmerited uh, referral from a competitor because there was an investigation, even if the DOJ, DOJ did eventually decline to prosecute, uh, they took uh, a long time to do it. And uh, there was enough there for them to, to think about it. So um, for companies out there, they need to understand that uh, really the mechanisms by which the DOJ can find out about a, even alleged conduct are either unlimited or only limited by the imagination of those who are uh, blowing the whistle. Tom, was this a, a client of the firm or they were just writing about this as a general observation? Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Um, but I thought pretty significant. Uh, Definitely. Next, next we had something that I think is really going to be more important that it would seem originally, which was we had a OFAC, which is the U.S. Tr Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control, have an enforcement action against a non-U.S. company. And um, obviously in the FCPA world, um, companies domiciled or headquartered outside the United States have felt the wrath of the Department of Justice and SEC for many years in some fairly mammoth FCPA enforcement actions, starting with Siemens uh, through Alstom, uh, Total, um, BAS, uh, or BAE, you name the, the non-U.S. company. But here we had um, what I thought was a, a fairly tangential relationship by CSE Global Limited and its subsidiary CSE Transtel um, uh, Partnership Limited, PTE Limited rather, both based in Singapore. And they had contracted to install telephone equipment for um, uh, an Iranian energy um, project. And the um, that violated U.S. sanctions. The problem was these companies were not U.S. companies, uh, yet they routed payments through the U.S. financial system. They were Singaporean companies. And so the money was routed through the U.S. Uh, banking system, and that created U.S. jurisdiction. So um, the uh, in the FCPA blog, uh, there was an article which said that uh, companies should consider the following. Non-U.S. companies should terminate the, US of, the use of U.S. dollar payments in businesses involved in OFAC sanctioned jurisdictions and parties. 
So that means if you're a non-U.S. company and you're out there doing business with an OFAC-sanctioned party or company, uh, and you run through the U.S. banking system, you're subject to U.S. Uh, jurisdiction. So you need to be cognizant of that. Two, U.S. companies should avoid receiving U.S. dollar payments involving uh, OFAC-sanctioned jurisdiction. So if a company that's sanctioned pays you through the U.S. banking system, that is certainly a way that can give rise to uh, jurisdiction as well. And then finally, uh, non-U.S. banks should make more appropriate use of uh, customer due diligence and undertakings along with internal monitoring mechanisms to mitigate U.S. sanction risk. Uh, Even if you don't think you're subject to OFAC, you still need to know who you're doing business with, know your customer, know your third party, perform an adequate amount of due diligence. And so a good reminder, but also uh, I thought important because it may signal a new round of um, OFAC uh, enforcement actions and that um, with the current administration and Congress's push towards additional sanctions on Russia could maybe bite uh, companies that didn't think they were subject to U.S. jurisdiction. So, Tom, next up, we have an article that you uh, wrote about this week talking about what is the financial health of your third parties? What's what's your takeaway from that? So I came across a company called Rapid Ratings and Rapid Ratings generally services the financial industry and the financial services industry. And they have a very slick tool which uh, takes a look at the financial health of a third party. And they uh, advocate financial health as a key indicia of how that third party is going to perform. And when I thought about it, I thought, you know, this is really an excellent way or an excellent additional tool, rather, for the anti-corruption compliance practitioner. In addition to the AML or uh, uh, other uh, practitioner, compliance practitioner, because financial health really tells you, one, how well uh, a third party could deliver a a product, but also if they uh, are sloppy in their bookkeeping, if they've missed uh, audits or deadlines, if they are perpetually being sued or late on paying their taxes, that's the kind of company that would have the uh, moral flexibility, let's just say, to cut corners. And by cutting corners in the FCPA world, that can mean paying bribes to get contracts. So I thought it was a really interesting tool that these guys have. They have a huge database of information now. And it was, I think, um, once again, many of the um, cutting edge tools in due diligence come from the financial industry and the financial services world around uh, money laundering. And this is one more tool that I thought was significant for the compliance practitioner to begin to consider a more holistic and well-rounded view of your third parties, who you're doing business with, your joint venture partners, uh, or anyone else that really you're going to be in bed with uh, on a business basis and why it's important to uh, have that information uh, going forward. So, Good uh, stuff. So, oh, go, go ahead. ahead, Tom. Sorry. I was going to say, so next up, um, we have an article this week uh, from the Wall Street Journal. And um, Sam Rubenfeld uh, does an interview with um, uh, Nat, with MasterCard that has just uh, recently uh, instituted some anti-corruption training with our good friend Richard Bistrong. And uh, Sam talks to Karen Griffin, who's the chief compliance officer for MasterCard, 
they talked about how they developed with this program with Richard. And what's really nice for the compliance community as a whole is they're also allowing this um, uh, this film to be licensed to other corporations because they feel uh, the message is so important and that it doesn't just speak to MasterCard as its own uh, industry, but it can, can be useful to other folks. So I think that's a, a great perspective that, you know, if you've come up with a tool that you think is going to work and excite your um, workforce to learn about ethics and compliance, I think it's great that uh, MasterCard is uh, making that available to other folks uh, within uh, the FCPA and the ethics compliance uh, world. So, Jay, that really leads into what I am really most uh, excited about this week and why we've named uh, this episode the 10-year anniversary episode. And it's because uh, this week, um, the FCPA blog, Dick Casson, has celebrated 10 years of being in existence. And in many ways, I think, uh, this podcast uh, owes a tip of the hat to the FCPA blog, as does every other blogger in the compliance space. Dick Casson was the first uh, to start blogging about FCPA and compliance. He is certainly the grandfather, and he certainly led the way. And um, 10 years, uh, I've been doing this since 2009. Um, others um, have been doing it as well. And uh, But he's, he's the granddaddy of them all. And uh, we all owe a huge tip of the hat to him. We all owe a lot uh, to him. He uh, encouraged me. He encouraged me to write for his blog, and then he encouraged me to blog for myself. Then he encouraged me to uh, um, to write a book. So uh, he, he has really been uh, a mentor and an inspiration to innumerable people in the compliance space. He continues to be one of the hardest working men in compliance, posting multiple times a day, writing multiple times a day. At his uh, FCPA blog conference last year, he said he envisioned a FCPA compliance bulletin board for the entire compliance community where you could come in and someone could post something. Uh, we've uh, talked about a couple of things today already that were on the bulletin board, uh, even if we didn't cite to it. Obviously, the OFAC uh, enforcement action I cited to, but also the Net One uh, Technologies um, a declination was on there. The uh, MasterCard use of Richard Bastrong's video was on there. Some of the other things uh, we're going to talk about may, may be on there as well. So uh, it's uh, really an incredible resource. Dick Casson has been a leader in this community. He's been practicing FCPA compliance as a lawyer literally since the law was passed in 1977. Uh, as uh, Dean Atchison would say, he was there at the creation and he's, he's been one of the true leaders in this field, and it's great to see him uh, hit 10 years, and I'm certainly thrilled that we could uh, honor him in our own small way by uh, naming this uh, podcast in uh, the 10-year anniversary edition. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a, a milestone to hit, and as you said, uh, you know, so many of us in the uh, commentariat I definitely owed uh, a huge debt to Richard for setting up uh, this kind of clearinghouse for ideas where people can come in and, and share their knowledge and more importantly, uh, learn from other people. And I will also say that, uh, you know, he'll take uh, really any contributor and he, he doesn't criticize, uh, he doesn't uh, call people out. He is truly uh, a renaissance man in terms of putting out ideas for the consumer, meaning uh, compliance community's consumption. 
And I think that uh, he's really led in many ways the conversation, but more importantly, the tone of the conversation. So uh, another uh, another shout out to uh, to Dick. So uh, thank you, Mr. Casson, and thank you to the FCPA blog. Well, well done, Dick. And also, Tom, um, I, I guess you've just uh, lost another a half hour or an hour of sleep because you have another new podcast that debuted this week. Something like that. Uh, I don't sleep very much <laughs> as it is. But uh, yes, I'm uh, very pleased to announce the uh, premiere of my new our latest um, podcast across the board where I take a look at uh, the board of directors and corporate governance it's uh, gonna. We're going to look at uh, the board, risk management, corporate governance. I'm going to take it from the board perspective. In other words, uh, I'll have board members on my podcast, but also have um, senior executives and those who've reported to boards and talk about what it's like, what the, they think the board needs. It's going to be a, a really fun series. I've got, I think, six in the can now, uh, finally. Um, and uh, the first episode was... Uh, uh, came up, went up this week. I've linked to it in the show notes. And in this episode, I had uh, Richard Lummis, who is actually the host of my podcast, uh, 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. Richard is a well-known um, or rather serial, serial entrepreneur. He's worked in uh, multiple industries, been on boards. He's reported to boards. And I thought uh, he would have some excellent ideas about uh, the Uber board and its role in the um, ongoing scandals and controversies from that company. We took a look at uh, the Uber board, uh, both in terms of what they didn't do before the Holder Report came out and then what they did do afterwards. So it was uh, pretty powerful and certainly one that uh, 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 was uh, well-received. The um, trying to see... I guess I, uh, someone uh, posted some comments. I was trying to uh, find those, but I uh, can't find those right now. But it was very well received, and I'm very thrilled to uh, to have that up. It will be uh, posted weekly. It's available on the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, Libsyn, YouTube, and JD Supra. Um, and then one other uh, thing I wanted to announce, uh, put forward, Jay, on uh, my podcast series is, I think as everyone knows, I'm doing uh, 12 months, a 12-month podcast series uh, with each month dedicated to a uh, compliance topic uh, of one month to a more effective compliance program. And this month's topic is one month to more effective continuous improvement, which is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors, uh, your group. And in this podcast, I uh, go through, I think it's 23 days this month, of how to have greater continuous improvement in your compliance program. Uh, I've really enjoyed working on this series. There are a lot of specific things that you can do to have continuous improvement. Uh, many are at, uh, I was really surprised to find low cost, and but they're things that uh, will really help you move forward. Obviously, uh, a full-blown monitor or full-blown uh, forensic audit is one, but from that going uh, forward, there's uh, literally uh, a lot of different types of auditing you can do. There's different types of monitoring you can do. So I'll be exploring that really throughout the series. The first four episodes are up from the first week in August, and we start off with episode five on uh, Monday. So uh, pleased to announce that. Certainly pleased to have affiliated monitors as the, uh, the sponsor. Uh, they've uh, uh, helped 
uh, me to put together some thoughts on really what is different types of monitoring and auditing going forward. So looking forward to that. And once again, thanks for the sponsorship. And of course, it's available on the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, Libsyn, YouTube, and JD Super, as is across the board. But Jay, I wanted to see if we might be able to spend a little bit of time because you've recently been on the road and indeed on the road internationally in a couple of countries south of the border. And what I would like are, are your thoughts on the people you interacted with, observed, saw um, about compliance, because um, there's kind of a continuing debate on uh, is there enough FCPA enforcement? Is there too much? Um, does the F, does the Department of Justice need to ramp up prosecution of individuals? But uh, Dick Casson really is the leader in in uh, in responding to the following question, which is, uh, has FCPA enforcement uh, done anything? And his answer is, um, all I can tell you is there's more compliance. So, what did you see on your trip and travels around the issue of is there more compliance out there? Yeah, I, th I think the answer is, is definitely yes. And um, one thing uh, that I, I just want to talk about is there seems to be um, a real hunger for compliance, uh, especially from millennials who are in the workforce. And, uh, you know, the couple countries that I visited on my trip are, are both, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty well up there in the CPI um index uh, in terms of, you know, pressures for uh, for anti-corruption, for corruption rather. And um, what we were doing is uh, kind of training on the code of conduct. And uh, it's really uh, encouraging to see young people out there who not only, um, you know, know the rules and why they're not supposed to do anything, but quite often folks in both uh, countries where I was doing focus groups were saying that they were really proud to work for company X where they're at because they have a commitment to ethics and compliance. And that um, is something that they can be proud of. And they know when they're bidding on a government tender or they know when they're doing something, they're doing it the right way. And that um, they furthermore avoid uh, entanglements with the government if they can they would prefer to um, potentially do business with private entities as opposed to government entities. So for me, as a, a compliance practitioner, it was just really heartening that we were dealing with these folks and unprompted, uh, not only did they have the answers, but more importantly, they felt this sense of pride that they were working for a company um, you know, whether it was a global company or U.S.-based company, they knew within their individual uh, country that what they were doing made a difference and it made them stand out. And they felt uh, really encouraged that they had the training and they knew what to do if the situation would arise. So, Jay, you also uh, kind of pivoting to that uh, in a little bit different way. You uh, are going to have an article published in this month's SCCE magazine on a topic that I think is near and dear to your heart. And it's certainly one that we've talked about on this podcast, which is how compliance can be a business manager, excuse me, a business advantage. And I was wondering if you might be able to just give us a little teaser preview. Sure. And just as you gave a tip of the hat to Dick Casson to 
being uh, uh, an early cheerleader and a mentor and for encouraging you to move forward in this space. Uh, I wanted to tip my hat to you and really how this article came uh, came about was you and I were riffing a couple uh, months ago and you were saying, you know, it, it would be really great if, if you took that idea and expanded into a larger article about how you can use compliance as a business advantage. And as you said earlier in the, uh, the, the podcast that you're all about um, process and embedding controls. And I decided to riff on that. Whereas that we now have so much data streams coming to us from the internet of things. And if you were able to kind of bust down, uh, break out from the silos and take the different information out there and how could you use it not only to be uh, uh, something that you can do to help yourself in your company, but how could you use it to create a business advantage? And hearkening back to what I was just saying about those uh, companies where I was meeting with people, they felt that because they had um, a robust ethics and compliance program, that it not only differentiated them uh, among their competitors, but it also differentiated themselves among who they chose to do business with. So um, by taking that as a leap, as a jumping off point, I've kind of taken how uh, we can bust, bust down, break out from those silos and use information. And that not only puts the company in a position uh, to succeed from an ethics and compliance standpoint, but that might also put them in a p- position to lead against their competitors. Well, we certainly uh, look forward to that coming out. We're going to link to it in the show notes. Um, Jay, I think we are uh, near the end of uh, this episode. I will note for the record that we had uh, two football games this week. So uh, perhaps we can uh, start our discussions of uh, pro football. Tom Brady will not be talking about any of the concussions he may or may not have had in the past. So uh, perhaps uh, we will need to fill that gap or that void. But um, nonetheless, uh, a really interesting week. And I was wondering if you might uh, take us home. Sure. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending some of your weekend with us and taking a look at the FCPA, uh, the week that was an FCPA, the 10th anniversary edition for the week ending August 4th, 2017. Thanks a lot and have a great weekend. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rank, excuse me, rate our podcast. It was a help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly FCPA and compliance related podcast, which reviews the week's events. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay Rosen at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening again to this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.